0: It says Oh, hi. There we go. It Today is just struggling on me here. I apologize. Uh, like I said, I was at uh, the AGC Pastors Conference called uh, Refresh this last week, and it was, it was tremendously refreshing, uh, encouraging. Uh, it was a really, really wonderful time to connect. And, and I just want to mention one thing. We, we looked at a text in Joshua chapter 3 where they're, they're just finally finished wandering in the wilderness and they're about to go into the promised land. And so God says, okay, when you're ready, sorry, not when you're ready, when I'm ready, he says, I'm going to have the uh, Levites are going to come and the Ark of the Covenant's going to be carried and then you're going to follow from a distance of 2,000 cubits. And then there's this line that says, because you have never been this way before. And that was our theme of of considering This time, this unique circumstance that we find ourselves in as the church, we have never been here before. And so as we navigate through this, remembering that we are not as smart as we think we are and that we desperately need the wisdom and the leadership and the guidance of God. And so that has been our prayer and our continued prayer. And, uh, and just, I would ask that you pray for us as a board. Uh, in the coming weeks, we're going to have our first meeting with some of the new board members that have been voted on. And we just ask for your prayer for wisdom as we meet and as we talk, as we consider what God wants us to do. Uh, you can open to 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to look at 35 to 49 today. Uh, I, was, I was telling Shayla when I wrote this. Um, after this many years, however many it 's been, of writing sermons every week, you kind of get in a groove of you know how long it takes and, and you're just there 's just a process by which you go and so uh, I wrote it and I was really kind of confident of the first draft of it, and then I looked and it was seventy percent shorter than normal and i didn 't notice that writing it, so you are going to get out of here earlier today so uh Again, I think we're going to say what needs to be said, and we're going to look at this. We're going to look at a couple of other texts that support this. And if we're done early, that'll be the first time in my history, and I'm sure that'll be okay by you as well. We have been dealing with um, this whole book over the last calendar year, but we've gotten into this chapter 15, the second longest chapter in the New Testament, and it's predominantly about resurrection. The importance of resurrection, the importance not only of Jesus' resurrection, that he came and that he died and then was rose again, but also that we will rise again as well. And Paul has been arguing this whole time of this is a central thing that cannot be ignored. And in fact, he goes as far as to say it cannot be disbelieved, because if you disbelieve the resurrection, you disbelieve the gospel. That sounds super harsh and aggressive, but as we've gone through it, we've seen why Paul has argued that way. And so this morning, we're going to look at a different aspect of it. And there's something interesting that happens here. In the text this morning, and when we read it, you'll see it, is they're being rebuked for this question. I think we ask the question, I think all of us ask the question, though I think, I hope anyway, we ask with different motives than they do. And the rebuke, I'm going to argue, comes from the motivation, not the question. The question that they're wondering is this, is essentially, what what will our resurrection bodies look like? And if you became a Christian, I, don't, I shouldn't say this, maybe no matter when you became a Christian, that is a question that we've wondered. Anybody else? No, just me, when I can't sleep at night? Three of us? Okay. Well, let's just ignore the first three paragraphs then. No, I'm just kidding. Um. I have wondered, like, what what am I going to look like? I was, I was fighting to put a little slideshow up of all, like, the ideal Greggs, but I really thought that wouldn't be a good idea. I was going to put an Arnold Schwarzenegger with Greg's face photoshopped, and is this the, you know, anyway. What are we going to look like? Uh, we know that it's different, but... A little bit the same when we think about Jesus' own resurrection as people recognized him, but they also didn't recognize him if he didn't want to be recognized. And, and so there's some kind of confusion there. We're going to talk about uh, a cultural confusion that exists in our time as well. But what will we look like? And perhaps a further question is how will we recognize anybody in heaven? For those of us who have perhaps uh, lost loved ones and you think, man, I can't wait to be together again with this or that person, perhaps you've gone down the side rabbit trail of going, will I recognize them? Will they recognize me? Will we have a, a similar relationship? Will it be different? And so we want to address all of these questions because I think they're good and they're healthy to address. But the issue here that you're going to see is that Paul rebukes the Corinthians for this, not because of their inquisitiveness. Is that a word? I say that right? But because they doubt the resurrection. And so they use these questions as a way to say, can't. The resurrection can't happen because none of this makes any sense. And so Paul rebukes them for that. And so the question is okay to ask, I think. So let's read. 35 to 49 says this. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. The glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for star differ from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. and as is the man of heaven so are all excuse me so also are those who are of heaven just as we have been just as we have borne the image of the man of dust we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven so paul goes back to a, a kind of an argument about jesus being the second adam the the perfect adam is a way that you could describe it and we're going to talk about that in a few moments but this first question we want to deal with because the issue, again, is not the question, it's the doubt. It's the lack of belief. Oh, I shouldn't even say doubt. It's the rejection of the resurrection. And, and Paul, this must be very frustrating too, because Jesus spoke very plainly about the resurrection on several different occasions. It's not as though this was some new theology that Paul had brought to them, but this actually came from the word, the very mouth of Jesus. And so I want you to flip back just for a moment to John chapter 5, and we will have it on the screen, but if you want to flip there, that would be great as well. John chapter 5, verse 25 to 29, Jesus says this, "...truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live." For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, will come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Could it be any more clear than that? Jesus says, this is what's going to happen. This is the reality of your resurrection. So, so, Corinthians, how could you possibly say that there is no resurrection? Because somehow it doesn't make sense in your logical minds. Here's the reality that we all have to endure. God is a lot smarter than we are. And he is a lot more capable than we are. If God can make man out of dust and breathe life into him, do you think he can figure out this whole resurrection problem? Of course. Of course. But the Corinthians were not believing that. And, and I do want to make just a little side note here, because this passage in particular has often been used uh, by the early church um, in their understanding. And as, as time went along, there were some confusing views portrayed and some weird theologies came out of this. And there was this essentially this belief that as you died is how you would be raised. You see any problems with that? What about those who died in some pretty horrific ways that we read about in the New Testament? We read in Hebrews that people are ripped in two. They're beheaded, all these kind of things. And so there there was this belief talked about in that way that if you lost your head, that you would raise without your head. What sense does that make? And then secular culture hasn't happened with this fixation on the zombie apocalypse And all of a sudden people start to think, man, I hope I'm not here when the resurrection happens because that's going to be terrifying. And I think we're missing the point when we do that. What Jesus is trying to get at is that there is life coming again and the tomb will not hold you just as it did not hold Jesus. And you will be raised to life with Christ. And so even though we maybe don't know exactly what it looks like, will will our bodies look the same as they do now? Probably yes, probably no, I think at the same time. That's real clear, I realize. But as we wrestle through some of this, we, re- we see not a lot of detail is given. It isn't just spelled out, this is what you're going to look like. And so, instead of arguing and trying to figure out, well, let's logically process what could it possibly look like and what are the things that are going to need to be there and don't need to be there, is we simply have to come to the conclusion that we don't know, but that Jesus has promised we will rise again. And so he'll take care of that body. And so if you have a family member, and this was a big bone of contention in the church for a long time, is this view that cremation was inherently wrong because then your body would not be able to rise again because you wouldn't have a body left. Of course, the logic there doesn't work because what about those Christians who faithful Christians who were burned at the stake? What about some of those kinds of situations? And so people have tried to make these things say what they don't, and I'm simply trying to get us to look at this and say, If God can create out of nothing, then certainly a resurrection body is not a problem for him. He'll figure that out. So as he says, or as the Corinthians say, how how are the dead raised? Well, they're actually not the first group of people to deny the resurrection. Can you think of anybody else in the New Testament who denies the resurrection? The Sadducees. What were the Sadducees? The Sadducees were sad. Yeah. Kids club anybody? No? Okay. Uh, No, who were the Sadducees? They were religious leaders of the Jewish faith. And so they were, according to what Paul has argued here, is they were actually denying the gospel. They were in opposition to Jesus. And so we actually read about this as well in Luke chapter 20, and, and you can flip there and you maybe will remember this, but... They are trying to trap Jesus because they don't believe it. And uh, Luke actually writes this for us really clearly, starting in verse 27. It says this, There came to him some Sadducees, comma, those who deny there is a resurrection. Just in case we're not clear on that, Luke makes it clear. And they asked him a question saying, uh, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. That's just this hypothetical argument that they're making based on the law. So now, in verse 29, they say, Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her also. And likewise, all seven, no children, and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For for the seven had her as wife. So they're trying to make some kind of logical argument to go, resurrection can't happen because what about this? Jesus responds. Jesus says to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. They cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. So notice what he's doing now. saying, first, you have a faulty assumption, and you're basing your theology on a faulty assumption. But not only that, just like you argue about the law and about a hypothetical situation that exists from the law, so also Jesus argues from the law. Even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him anything. You have this faulty assumption that they make, and Jesus corrects that faulty assumption, but he also says, But you don't even understand the law. You, Sadducees, who are teachers of the law, you're ignoring what's written in it. The resurrection has been talked about from essentially the beginning. And so this is where we find ourselves. And I know that's a lot of context to get us to this point. But it's to show us that the Corinthians are not alone in this view, that many have held this view, but that biblically speaking, this is something that has existed for so long. And when we try and argue with God, God, how could you possibly do this? To Paul, that's just an irrelevant question. God can and God will. And how will God? Paul doesn't try to give us an answer but he does give us an analogy, right? So he says, you fool, well, essentially in the Greek, he calls them, he says, you fool. It's about as direct as it gets. He says, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And then he gives this beautiful imagery of the garden, right? When you bury a seed, right? Essentially, you are covering it up to death. And then it brings forth life. Does it look like the seed looked to begin with? How many of you have had to, had to, gotten the joy as a child of planting a garden. We had a huge, huge garden in the in a house that I, not in the house, in the yard that I grew up in, and as, you know, we matured and hopefully got a little bit more responsible, we were in charge of, you know, putting little seeds along the rows, back and forth, and there is no way on earth that if I didn't have the package with the picture on it, could I tell you what was going to come up. Maybe potatoes would be the exception, right? But like typically speaking, this little seed, like maybe some kind of botanist knows this, but the average person looking at that seed cannot tell you what's going to come. We look at it and we go, maybe it's a flower. Are all flowers the same? To some people, perhaps that's true. But we look at this and we plant it and what happens is a complete and radical transformation. So Paul uses this very simple analogy to say, look, Maybe it's a kernel of, of something like wheat. But when it, is, when it rises again, when it comes out of the grave, that's the imagery that he's using, it looks nothing like it did to begin with. So that's his argument. Even in nature, we see this. Not all flesh is the same. There's one kind for humans, for animals, for birds, for fish, and so on. There's heavenly bodies and there's earthly bodies. And so now notice what he's going to do here. Heavenly bodies are meant for where? Heaven. Earthly bodies are made for Earth. It's not rocket science, but yet it's deeply insightful. right? How, much, how many millions, perhaps billions of dollars are we spending trying to find another planet that could, that could support life the way that this one is perfectly crafted, as we are perfectly crafted for it? As God has created it. You are meant to exist here in this earth right now and so he has created your body so that it works the way that it does and you can get into the technical side of it and look at breathing air as just the simplest thing. As you go higher and higher and higher, what happens? The air gets thinner until all of a sudden you don't have enough air and you'll pass out. You are created exactly the way you need to be created so that you can live here. And so if you're going to raise again, if you're going to rise again to heaven, do you think God can deal with whatever heaven realities look like? I told Smonga, this week I'm going to talk about basically this, is if you need to fly in heaven, God will make it so you can fly. Wouldn't that be cool? I have no idea what heaven's going to be like. When we read through scripture, like we're given little hints and little clues, but really we have no grasp at how wonderful this is going to be. All I know is that we are going to be created exactly for it and it for us because that's God's intent. That's God's design. And so Paul's using, even here on the earth, you have this to see before you so that you can understand there's a concept of resurrection that exists not only for you, but even amongst nature. And it's a beautiful thing. It's as if they're asking this, this question of how could this possibly be? Our bodies are not capable of resurrection. And Paul says, so what's your point? Like really, it doesn't matter. God has put this in so that we can see. Leon Morris wrote this. He says, plants do not rise and people do not rise of their own volition nor do they do it by chance. They do it because it's the way that God has determined it shall be. You're going to rise from the dead, not because of you, but because of him. This is the way that he has done it. And Jesus mentioned that in the first text that we looked at, or the first supporting text we look at, is that everyone will rise. Those who have confessed Christ the Savior will rise to heaven, and those who haven't will rise to judgment. It's not a matter of what you believe. Resurrection is going to happen no matter what. So what you believe does have eternal significance. And so this is why Paul is being so aggressive. This is why this chapter is so long and why he deals with this in so many unique ways over the course of these verses because this is something that cannot be ignored. Then he says this, our physical bodies, they're gonna perish. Essentially this is your your physical body has a shelf life. Anybody noticing that more as you get a little bit older? I'm not sure if I told this story here or not, but I'm going to, again, if, if I did, I apologize. Uh, Smanga and I have a game that we play creatively called Dad Tag. It's essentially tag in the dark. And Smanga has gotten really good at it because all he does is listen for my joints to pop when I try and run. Like, really, my ankles and my knees and everything just like, and he just giggles and runs and tags me. It's a very unfair game now. But this is the reality of growing older right is we have a shelf life. We we the older we get the more aware of our mortality we get. I heard that over and over this past week at the conference. It says some of our older pastors were talking about passing the baton onto younger people. They said their perspective in these last years has changed radically. They're more aware that the end is coming and so they're more heavenly focused and they're more concerned about the things of God than the things of man. Oh, could we have that kind of wisdom at a much younger age, realizing this. We are not meant, at least in the condition that we find ourselves in with our sin nature, to live forever. And actually, it's one of the greatest blessings ever that when Adam and Eve sinned, that God took the tree of life out of the garden, out from their presence, so that they could not eat of it and live forever in the condition in which they were. There would not be redemption then. But so God, in, a bless, in an act of love and compassion, took it out and then took us out of the garden so that we could not eat of that tree, but so that he could then show us his plan for salvation, his plan for redemption, and ultimately his plan for resurrection. So he says, your physical body, it's sown in dishonor, but it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, but it is raised in power. It is sown natural, it is raised spiritual. There's a contrast that exists here. And then he goes back to this idea of Adam versus Jesus. Now this is a a theological method of writing. It's called typology where they take something and it represents something to a degree. So in in some senses what he's saying here is that Jesus represents Adam in this. Jesus was the Adam that Adam couldn't be. Adam chose to sin. Adam chose to go against God. God said, don't eat of this, and and Adam and Eve ate of that, and so they failed. Jesus comes and lives this perfect life to show that he was capable, and so because he was capable, now he can die on the cross for our sins. He was the perfect Adam. He's what Adam should have been, but was incapable of doing. And so you can see this contrast coming back and forth. Essentially, this idea of typology goes to the the place of all the new things that are coming are kind of like the old things, only they're better than the old things. So when you go to uh, even the beginning, you read at the beginning of the Bible that there's a garden and there's the tree of life. What do you read in the last chapter of Revelation? A garden and the tree of life, except there's no more sin. It's a recreation of what happened. It's this redemption of sorts, but done in this way of going. It's just like that, only it's better. So what will you look like? Just like you do, only better. I don't know what that means. All I know is we will no longer have the illnesses, the pains, the joints. When I run past Smanga, he will not hear my joints popping in heaven. Right? You will not feel the pain that you feel. And, and I'm not even talking about the emotional side of things. I'm strictly talking the physical in this sense. Is your body will be created for heaven perfectly the way that it is. And as I read last week from Revelation, is there will be no more sickness and sadness and pain and hurt and tears and all these things because all of that is indicative of the sin nature that is present within us. And so it's almost as though God takes our bodies and he strips away everything that shouldn't be there and what's left. Then he perfects the way that he intended it to be from the beginning. That's what resurrection looks like. And so he's saying, Corinthians, this is the reality. Yes, you share in man because you were created from dust, and to dust you will return. But because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, you not only will return to dust, but you will be raised to life again perfectly. And again, this is something that we just, I don't think we can exhaust this enough. I don't think we can talk about this enough because what it does is it gives us so much hope beyond what we could possibly imagine right now. The hurt that we might have on any given day from any situation, we know that that will end. That it will be redeemed. Now, as I close, I do want to mention one, I know this is really fast, I'm sorry, but we want to thank you for laughing, appreciate that. Ah, one last thing I want to deal with, because in the text that we looked at in Luke, sometimes we get off on a little rabbit trail as well, when Jesus says, well, marriage is a thing of the earth, not of eternity. And so I've had many people come and ask me, like, like will, will I have the same relationship or a similar relationship with my spouse that I do now when I'm in heaven? And for some people, it's really hard. Probably for all of us, this is really hard. Uh, There's no one that I love on this earth more than Shayla. And when I start to think about what will that relationship look like in heaven, all I know is, is it won't be exactly the same as it is here. And that can actually cause some concern and sadness and uncertainty. But what Jesus is trying to get at is this. God's love is perfect. And our love is imperfect. And even the one that I love most in this life, who is my wife, even she deals with a great deal of imperfect love from me. And so my love towards her is gonna be so much greater than what I have here because the love of the Father will be in me and I won't have the sin nature competing with that, but it'll just be love towards her. But not in the same way as here. It'll be in heaven, we are the family of God. We all become one and sometimes that can actually like i said bring us to like the sadness of so i won't be just beside shayla's side in heaven as we're worshiping and i'm not trying to argue that i'm not trying to make a theology of what what heaven's going to look like in that sense i'm simply trying to say this is the relationship that i have with anybody here is nothing compared to what my relationship will be with everybody in eternity isn't that great news it's hard to process. It's hard to think about. And so we can look at that and we can go, my son or my daughter who, who died and I want to be reunited with them. That's because in this life, that's as great as love as you can think about. But when you come to eternity, every single person you encounter, you will love far more greatly than you ever have loved anyone on earth. Now, Again, I'm not trying to say that means you won't reunite. I, I don't, I'm not smart enough to make that argument. All I'm trying to say is as we read texts like this, don't get hung up in our, our very narrow-minded way of thinking. Eternity is going to look like this, but so much greater, so much better. And praise the Lord for that. May we rest in the simple truth that when we get to heaven, we don't have to worry, what am I going to look like? Am I going to know anybody? Am I going to have the same relation? We don't have to one- worry about anything. You can wonder all you want but you can trust that God and his love will indwell you far greater than anything you could have ever imagined on this side of eternity. And that is great news. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the truth of these verses in it, and that as we look forward to heaven and as we maybe in our human minds wonder, what are we going to look like and how are these relationships going to be? God, to a degree... None of that is actually really that important because we are trusting that how you are going to raise us to be with you in heaven is far greater than anything we could ever understand. God, help us not to try and deny what you are doing in our lives because logically it doesn't fit. Of course it doesn't fit. Why would we worship a God that we could logically solve? You are completely other than we are. And you have no limitations. And if you created Adam of the dust and breathed life into him, then we trust that you can do all things. And so we eagerly await to rise from the dead, to be with you again, the way that you intended to be. No sin, no hurt, no pain. God, we look forward to that day. Would you put that in our minds and, and would we not wait until we grow older to start to shift that focus? But right now, wherever we're at, may we think more about the spiritual than the physical. May we be more aware of our relationship with you and less concerned with the stuff that is in front of us. God, we love you and we're grateful for all that you were doing. Go with us today. Go with us this week. Help us to have a perspective of you. We love you. Amen. Oh, didn't you get the memo? Oh, okay, we're on. Oh, good, good.